So I was listening to Rise Against on the way here and the song will make it stop is about bullying and teenage suicide. So this is a, a something that's very, very relevant in the world today. Entrepreneurs, we either fix a problem or we fill a gap. It's only one of those two things. Uh, we often accept stuff. We put things in place and they were right at one stage and then we believe that they're going to be right forever. Mm. But they're not. You have to constantly question yourself, even the things that made you successful in the first place. Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Future Fit Tribe, before we start today's episode, if you are looking for more inspiration, visit my column on bizcommunity.com where I unpack the burning marketing issues that businesses face today. You can sign up for our Future Fit Masterclasses at booyah.co.za to build connected customer experiences and also check out our other cool services. Last but not least, don't forget to book your tickets to our regular FutureFit networking events aimed at helping you surf the tsunami of change. The events bring fresh perspectives with tour de force speakers and thought leaders as we debate, learn, inspire, connect. Tickets always sell fast, so book today. All the links you need appear in the show notes of the episode or on the website. Now on with today's show. Hey everybody, today in studio we have Richard Mulholland sitting with us and very interesting is that Richard kicked off his career as a rock and roll roadie operating nights for pop punk rock bands. From there he started South Africa's largest presentation for Missing Link and co-founded 21 Tanks, SA's first perspective lab. Welcome, Rich. Awesome to have you here. Thanks so much. And I always like to say, if you were at a party, how would you introduce yourself? How do you bring the bacon home? <laughs> well, we'd always, we actually have a methodology for this. So it's always, you know how, when you, or what I do is. Yeah. So it might be, well, uh, you know how when you're standing in front of a group of people and you've got something exciting to tell them and you know it's going to be great for them. Yeah. Uh, but as you're delivering that crappy presentation, you see these dull, lifeless, bored faces staring back at you. But what I do is make sure that never happens to you again. We're going to work with you on your presentation skills, going to get your content right, going to uh, make sure that when you speak to that audience, you grab them by the throat and drag them to the end. So that's what I do. I love that. It sounds intimidating, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> okay, so the reason I really wanted to chat to you today is, yikes, punk's always 
really rock business. So you're a punk kind of guy. I'm married to an Irishman. He is full on punk. He's an anarchist. He is a sport fanatic, mostly football. And um, I have seen quite a trait in him as like a no bullshit kind of guy. The way he does business is very different to how many people do business. And I, I really would like to explore that synergies because he actually used to own Stage Magazine. And music is also a big influence in his life. So I would like to explore that with you today because I find it very intriguing and see where it takes us and see what lessons we can learn from punk and how that's applied in business and what lessons we can learn from it. Okay, so the first thing is, let's take it from the beginning. As a rock and roll roadie, what was life like then? It was dirty and unglamorous. It was really, really cool. It gave me a work ethic that it was second to none. So you, you know, especially I worked in lighting. So we were often the last guys to leave at night because we'd have to program at, at night. And then we would arrive back, we'd do the show, we'd pack the trucks and we'd go from truck to truck. And for a period of time from maybe like three o'clock in the afternoon when doors opened till six o'clock when the show started, those are your glamour hours. Those are the, the time you got to feel like you're like <laughs> hardcore and cool. But the rest of the time you're just like, it was like dirty labor. But working as part of a road crew, it should be like military service. There's never any sort of idea that you could be late. The show will happen. The people are arriving. Things must work and they just do. And everybody just does whatever it will take to make it happen. It was the best education for me going from being at school I was a bit of a waiter so I worked in kind of I guess some degree of a pressure situation and then I started as a roadie and it just put a work ethic in place that has carried me throughout my career. So like what kind of bands did you hang out with? I didn't hang out with bands as such. I hang out with crews more than bands, of but course, I, yeah. I worked with uh, bands like Iron Maiden. I was lucky enough that their lighting show broke when they brought it to South Africa and it was their first leg of their world tour. So I had to program moving lights for the world tour. So that was really cool. Def Leppard, Midnight Oil, Sting. Midnight Oil. I love Midnight Oil. Midnight Oil was crazy rad. Hey, yeah. I used to love that. Okay, so what led to the transition from this rock and roll roadie and your startup? And how did this journey all begin for you? So first of all, the word startup didn't really exist in, uh, when, when I started Missing Link. So I'm 44 now. I started when I was 22. The reality was that I never intended in being... Uh, a roadie. That was never the career I wanted for myself. I wanted to work on Depeche Mode. That's how I arranged to get the job. And when I went to my boss, when he offered me a full-time job, I said, I want to be in the office. And he said, uh, nobody who works for me can work in the office without first being on the road. So you got to give me two years. So I did two years on the road. Then I did a year inside the office. And I'd started a corporate division inside that company, giving us work during the winter. But the realization was that it didn't matter how good your conference lighting, sound, and staging was. If the presentations were shit, the conference yeah. was shit. And um, I realized that that was the the real problem we're solving. So after a year inside the office at Gearhouse, I decided to go on my own. I'd had a business partner that I'd done some kind of moonlighting work with at the side. He, he'd been a guy I'd met because I was also the marketing manager of the company there. And he was a designer. And we thought, okay, we can solve people's presentation problems. And that's that's why we started Missing Link. I love it that there's always a problem. If, if we run out of problems, we won't have businesses, right? So yeah, luckily every solution creates a whole bunch more problems. And um, to me, that is entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs, we either fix a problem or we fill a gap. It's only one of those two things, right? So there's always a problem. And I think that you get bored of your business when you go into the solution phase. 
the exciting bit for most of us is when we're in the problem solving phase, right? Because I like mm-hmm. I like like figuring stuff out, mm-hmm. rolling stuff out is is a lot less interesting for me. So I like getting involved in the business. We have five companies at the moment. So I like getting involved in the earlier stages when we're still trying to figure out what the problem is and work out how we can solve it. And then you know there are professionals who help roll that out later in the solution phase. Well, something that really fascinates me about you is like you really come across. I remember seeing you at the Heavy Chef event speaking for the first time. Uh, we were talking about the fourth industrial revolution and it was quite fascinating to listen to you. And like the moment you see, you see your presence on stage and you really grab people into what you're saying and take them on the journey with you. But it's also, you have this demeanor that says like, Hey, like you better listen to what I have to say, which I find very intriguing about you. So how have you applied that daring, unorthodox approach within your organization? And what makes your business different to others? When I started the company, I had no idea what I was doing. So that, that's the first thing, right? I had absolutely no clue. Uh, I started the company and quite early on, the first few employees we had uh, were into punk rock music. or And I started enjoying it a lot and it became a big part of, of who I was. I got very involved in the punk rock community. I'd actually started a record label with a friend of mine called Crookroom Records, which was South Africa's premier punk rock record at the time. We'd signed bands like Fuzzy Gish and uh, Leek and Bunty Uptons. These were big punk rock bands uh, and ska bands. Uh, <laughs> I understand that a lot of people wouldn't know them, but it was a really, really great time. And I believe that there was a certain ethic and I believed in a a way of doing business that mirrored the punk rock ethic that I'd Mm. seen. So people often saw uh, punk as being a, about being destructive and things like that, but I didn't see it that way. I saw it about being questioning authority in the status quo, Mm. about not willing to take things just because we were told that we had to. You know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't take drugs. And this is kind of in line with the punk rock thing for me. I mean, it was very different to how it was in LA and, for example, the 70s and 80s. It kind of had evolved into a movement. And I remember starting a blog called Capitalist Punk, and it was the idea that punk kids would be measured on how much of a failure they had been. It was like, uh, if I can't be successful, and you know, we can't work for the man and do these things. And I wanted to prove that there was a, another alternative, that we should be able to have this punk rock ethic, mm. this questioning of authority, but still mm. be successful. They shouldn't be separate things. Mm. And I wanted to prove that there was a way that I could be true to myself and my values and still start a business and, you know, have a nice life. And and that's what I've tried to do the entire time. And so that's my conviction comes from there, from the idea that there's a better way of doing work. I love that. I actually, I wrote down this quote that I found, which was quite a nice way of explaining punk is that it's innovative, minimalistic approach, free chords and truth that turbo powers the genre. And for me, that that is such a true resemblance of it. And if I look at today, I kind of feel that there's a parallel with being woke all of a sudden, um, we're seeing this resistance to the old way of doing things. What's happened in the past is not okay today anymore, which is kind of the, the catalyst of change that we saw with the punk rock genre in the 70s and when this whole big disruption happened. Would you say that that's, that's yeah, possible? Except, except that people are not questioning things again, right? So now they're just, the punk rock was trying to move, a lot of people in punk rock were trying to move yeah. to be more accepting and more open to, to different things. And they were the first ones to, in many ways, fight for gay rights and against, you know, there were animal activists and all kinds of activists in all different ways. Now it seems like everybody is taken onto that like it's fashion, but they're not questioning it. They're not picking and choosing mm. uh, which parts they want to get engaged with. They're just like, oh, well, we're told that this is what we have to believe and we believe it. 
I used to see myself as quite a far left liberal type person. And now I'm certainly more steering, I believe, in, in today's day and age. It's not that I've moved, it's that the scale has moved. And I see myself as slightly more, I'd still say left of center, but um, somewhat centered. <laughs> I find that um, the extreme liberal left is as damaging as the extreme alt-right. 100%. And if you go too far left or too far right, you go exactly 360, yeah. so you end up where you started. There was a, this quote by John Hegarty, which was quite thought-provoking, where he said, he says that irreverence for its own sake is dangerous. And he said that the one thing is, is do that and you risk becoming irrelevant. He argues that what happened in the punk era has jolted conventional thinking, but didn't in turn put anything in place. So punk offered no vision. What is your take on that? So guys like Greg Graffin, the lead singer of Bad Religion, he wrote a punk rock manifesto and he tried to give some degree of intention to what punk rock is. The problem is that by defining it, you somewhat move against what it set out to be in the mm. first place. So punk didn't have a victory condition. It didn't have a, a goal that it was working towards other than to try and make people think for themselves. And I think that's a goal in and of itself. I think the idea that uh, if you can get a group of, you know, 15 to 20 year olds when they're in that phase of their life and you can instill in them a sense of questioning authority and not for the sake of being an anarchist, but for the sake of, of just questioning uh, what you're being told. And, you know, I've got tattooed on myself, reclaim yourself, question everything. And it's the idea that I do try and question what I'm told all the time. And I think that punk was very, very successful in making people think like that. The problem is if you outgrow it as a hobby, uh, hobby. <laughs> well, because it's kind of what it becomes, right? So it becomes this thing you identify yourself with in a stage in your life. But for the most part, the people I've seen that have outgrown, maybe they've changed their music tastes. So I still listen, I was listening to punk rock on my way here. I still listen to punk and a bit of metal stuff, but the values are very, very present for me. And even the, the punk rock guys that have grown up now and we're all adults and, you know, in our thirties and forties, they still have that same, that same sense of what they feel is right and wrong. And I think that that is because of punk and not in spite of it. And so I think it has been successful, even though it's not a movement, it's not a party, it doesn't have an agenda other than to make you question things. Mm. And I think that's possibly enough. Yeah, 100%. When you have that embedded in you, when you approach audiences, when you go out there and you speak to corporates, you almost have the sense of not always trying to be politically correct. You're always the salmon flying or swimming upstream and you're always trying to challenge things and make people see things differently. Would you find that, you know, that is a, a methodology that some can do and others can't? No, I think that, that everybody could if they wanted to. I think some people find it easier. So I've never, I've never struggled with being somewhat countercultural in terms of what I want to do. But even now, today, if I'm doing a talk, I'll be very aware of being slightly more politically correct in the world today. I think that the world has, uh, it's very, very, its senses are, are tuned to high and it will pick up on almost anything and people decide to be offended. I don't mind offending people. I don't, I don't think it matters that much. I, I think that they'll be okay afterwards. They'll live. And I always joke with my audiences that uh, any offense that they feel is taken by them, not given by me because none is offended, <laughs> intended. And, uh, but that can only get you so far. And today you can get into a lot of trouble. You know, your career could be over in a second if mm. you say the wrong thing and somebody decides to be outraged by it. So it has definitely tempered a lot of us. But I think that anybody who's willing to stand up and be heard and has something thoughtful to say can get away with 
you can get away with saying almost anything provided you say it in the right way. Mm. And I think that we should, right? I think it's important that stuff gets said. Yeah, and I think it's further to your point when you question things. So you question something, but you take people along with you with your vision. And you don't leave them with this void. I think that's also very important. One of the other things that I really want to chat to you is in closing is, is discussing more importantly, the lessons that we can learn from punk rock and how to apply it within our organizations and our businesses, because I think that there's a completely different mindset, uncompromising mindset that we could learn from. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a punk per se. I'm a, I call myself a lightweight punk because I'm with my husband and, you know, it's the clash and it's the Ramones and it's all of that. And we, we have our party weekends where we just play um, punk and I think we drive the neighbors insane. But behind that is something so beautiful and there's something so, enlightening for me and you can recognize somebody like that from that genre immediately when you start doing business with them so i want to understand from you what do you think is some of the lessons that we can learn from punk rock and apply in business sure well the first one is just to question stuff right that is a, it's a punk default is that we question everything and I, I mentioned it earlier but i really think that within your business and your companies that, that you have right now uh, we often accept stuff we put things in place and they were right at one stage and then we believe that they're going to be right forever mm. but they're not you have to constantly question yourself even the things that made you successful in the first place uh, you know this was right then it may not be right going forward and that's the first thing and and punk rock by its very core is constantly readdressing its own issues right. every new generation of bands that come into play are questioning, you know, the reality of the world as it exists today. So we're not trying to hold back to ethics that were put in place in the 1970s by the Buzzcocks and the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and things like this, right? It's okay to move forward and to be questioning issues that are relevant to people today. Mm. So I was listening to Rise Against on the way here, and the song I was listening to is Make It Stop. It's about bullying and teenage suicide. Oh. So this is a, a something that's very, very relevant in the world today. It's an issue that that, that is more prevalent. I think it's 5,000 teenagers per year are successfully, you know, ending their lives and uh, a lot more are attempting it. So punk rock is very good at, at getting into the source of the issues that are relevant and the problems that are relevant today. And to me, that's what entrepreneurs should be trying to do. Your job should be to fall in love with problems, not solutions. And you should be trying to push very, very hard for it. Turn around and saying, you know, if I started today, if I was the punk rock band version of my business today, what issue would I be calling out and what would I be trying to change in the world? And, and start from there and be uncompromising and be brave enough, be willing to put yourself on the line and to go up against authority to be able to do that. Because that's how progress happens. Something else that I was reading is like this, you know, keeping a promise, standing for something, this visual identity that matters. It's also important the way that you project yourself. I mean, look how punk rock has influenced brand design, brands, marketing, fashion, Vivian Westwood, all of those kind of things. I mean, it does have a an impact distinctly of how you look and how you project yourself? For sure. I mean, I remember the realizing, even when I was quite involved in the community, that I thought we looked so different. And now I realized we just looked like each other, but different <laughs> to other people. And every yeah. subculture has their own way of looking. And, and all subcultures will somewhat influence others. But I think the point about standing for something is important. Mm. Like you decide as well. And in fact, even within punk rock, there are the vegan bands and there's the, the anti-police brutality bands and there's, everyone's kind of got a cause and something they're singing about and that they're really big on. And you got to pick your, pick your poison. You got to pick your thing that you decide to stand for. And it's amazing how few businesses do. They don't really stand for anything. They're just like, you know, they stand for 
being boring and making more money and that's like never the end like mm. making money is a means to an end for me like it's cool i want to have a nice life i certainly want to have all the trappings of a middle-class suburban <laughs> like i'm totally on punk rock in that way but uh, i want to know that i'm trying to do something like a, a missing link and it sounds so cheesy and missing link top Roy, the two presentation businesses that we have in our group uh, we talk about saving the world one board audience at a time mm. and i know this sounds like wishy-washy but we believe 100 that we can do it we believe that we're going to change the way that kids learn to deliver messages. I believe presentation is the ability to move people. I had all these fancies about being the lead singer in a punk rock band, <laughs> and it's never going to happen. But when I get you never up, know. well, you I don't never know. know. I'm so bad at singing. <laughs> luckily, can happen. <laughs> luckily, punk rock is forgiving of bad singers. <laughs> but the idea of getting up on a stage and being able to deliver a message to people and change them—that yeah. that really excites me. And it's as close most of us will ever get to being rock stars of any type. And I want to make more people do that. I want to get more people falling in love with the idea of getting behind a microphone and moving audiences. And so this is like a this is like a purpose, something we stand for. I really want to learn more about that. So I obviously love public speaking. I have had the privilege of covering quite a lot of countries, but talking business, not necessarily talking my own message, motivational speaking, that kind of thing. It scares me. Being vulnerable on the stage. I tried it the other night and almost died. It was just like I got emotional and it was like that hard thing. So in order for you to bring your message to the table, you really need to move, as you say, move an audience, but you also need to put your heart on the table and, and share your story. And it depends on how deep you want to go. So tell me a little bit more about that side of your business. So I reckon if I've done that you talk about, maybe, I don't know, 2%, like I'm rarely... You know, I'm on stage and I'm presenting and I'm trying to move an audience to a specific place. And it's very rarely personal. Mm -hmm. Like I'll tell personal stories and things. So I certainly would never categorize myself as a motivational speaker. Okay. Occasionally there will be things I do that maybe some people get inspired by, which would be nice. Mm -hmm. But like, I mean, it's funny. There was a talk went out in Goldcast last year and it, it got quite viral, which was nice. It had like 17 million views and things. And it was a small little snippet of a small little talk I did where I presented a vulnerable story. That is so far from where I choose to be. Mm. I actually don't buy too much into this idea of motivational speaking as a concept. I find that it's like you go out there and then somebody tells you you can do it and be all you can be and they're inspiring you mm. because they bloody ran across the Great Wall of China and then you feel great about yourself, you know, with one leg and you're like, shit, that guy's amazing. And then you feel like, oh, I'm going to go do something in my life and then you feel great about yourself and then Monday morning comes and bitch slaps you upside the head yeah. and then you're back to normal again. I think we don't need to be motivated i think we need to be provoked um, but motivation wears off but provocation can sometimes dig deeper yeah. and so my job is not to motivate you is to provoke you to like make you feel like fuck i've got to do something more like i've got to do something better and, and sometimes the way to do that is not just to tell people that they should but is to give them the tools mm. and so the job of a speaker is not just to get vulnerable yourself but is to give your audience things that they can take away that they can right. actually put in place and all of these things get easier, right? So being vulnerable gets easier because as long as you understand that at the end of this talk, I need my audience to be here. And the right way to do that is this. If you believe enough in the destination you're trying to take your audience to, whatever it takes for you to get them there feels easy. Mm. It feels like an easy sacrifice to make. So that means telling a personal story and risk, you know, getting some tears in your eyes, which have happened to me before then so be it. If that yeah. means telling a funny story that may offend some people, but it also does a job, then so be that too. Yeah. 
No, I totally agree. But listen, I, I did it once. I will never, ever, ever go there. No, thank you. Why? No, I don't know. I just like, I don't like sharing my whole life to a public, but it was a special message that I had to bring across. And the only way by doing that is telling my why. I started the Future Fit Networking events. And I was telling the story of why I did it and the story behind it. And it's still a very raw and deep thing for me. And as I looked back at the screen and I saw me and my mom, because she had four strokes and she's not, she's like a robot at the moment. And as I saw her and I was trying to tell our story to say why this evening is happening and how I brought it all together, I looked at it and I was just like, I will never, ever do this on stage again, ever, because it's too, it's, it's too, it's too personal for me. But yeah, but let's say, let's say I went to you and said, okay, your story, there's a group of people that they're suffering through A, B, or C. And this particular story that you have about your mom and what you've gone through could be very, very valuable and could help them get through something in a way that maybe you didn't as well as you would have liked or would have helped you to do something different. You know, you could change and impact their lives with that story. Then I think you would. Mm -hmm. I think that you wouldn't maybe just do it just for the sake of going up there and just saying, hey, I want to tell a story and inspire. And maybe there's more businessy stuff that you could do that might be right there. But every now and then I sit there and I look at the brief and I look at what... I want my audience to do. So a presentation is simple, right? You're trying to deliver a message to achieve a result. This is quite similar to podcasting and things in general. Like we should decide at the end of this episode, if our audience isn't going to do one thing differently, then it's just information, right? It's just more knowledge. And we actually don't need more knowledge. Mm -hmm. What we need is more action. And the world is getting hyper learning. Right? Like there's just knowledge everywhere. You know, I'm listening to an audiobook and then I'm listening to a podcast and then I've got this and I go home at night and I read. And we've got too much information and not enough action. Mm. Let's say that you figured out that the right way to move this particular audience is with that story. Mm. I think that you should jump at it. And for me, that I would. So if I have to be vulnerable because I know that it can help achieve what I'm trying to achieve in this particular presentation, I will. And I think you could too. No, totally. And I mean, it was a big learning for me. It was the first time to do it. But um, yeah, it was hard. Tell me, what is the book that had the biggest impact on your life? There's been a few. So Selling the Invisible by Harry Beckwith was a, a book that I started reading quite early on in Missing Link's days. It's a bit of a timeless classic. Like a lot of his examples, if you read it today, will feel quite dated because it was written you know, 20, 25 years ago or so. But the principles are absolutely the same as how do you sell something that isn't tangible? If I have to sell a pen to you, it's easy because I can sell the properties of the pen. But if I have to sell a service to you, it's very difficult. And Beckwith breaks down this idea of how you sell services to people. Because most of my companies are service businesses, all but one, that's been extremely, extremely invaluable. And I remember when I went back, <laughs> I used to think I was like, oh, I was quite cool at making businesses and I knew what I was doing and I had my shit together. And then I went back and I reread Harry Beckwith's book again about, you know, 15 years later. And I realized, ah, oh, I never had an original idea. Basically, I just put this guy's stuff in place. <laughs> like it was all, it was all his thinking and I've just replicated it. And then another one that I really love is a book called Your Business Brickyard by Howard Mann. If you've had a business and you've been running it when you're kind of 10 years in and you're starting to feel a little bit jaded by it, that's when you read Your Business Brickyard. He tries to take you back to where you were when you began, what it was like, and, and to get you to focus on the fundamentals. And it's a super easy book to read, but it has been... Like I often wonder which of those two books have influenced me the most in terms of of how I've acted from a business point of view. And I'm not quite sure. 
I love that. I'm yeah. definitely going to read them because I haven't read them. So um, one I would add, if I yeah, can. Yeah, please. Uh, I read The Daily Stoic every day by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. And it's a, every day it's like a stoic philosophy, one page. They call it a meditation. It's not really a meditation. I mean, you just read it and think about it. But it's every day is that I open up in the morning, I open my Kindle app and I go to the next day and I'm on my second year. Now, so I've read sure. the whole book. The book is 365 days. I read the whole thing and I just started again. And it gives you some thought and intention for the day. And I really, really enjoy that. And that's so important, hey? Mm. It's so, so important having that thought and intention. What's in your nighttime reading? What are you currently reading? Always fiction. Always fiction. Yeah, so I, I would read fiction over nonfiction any day of the year. Like, I really like it. The book I'm reading at the moment, what's it called? It's a it's like a heroic fantasy book about a young girl who's training to become an assassin. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So it Sounds like a... Yeah, so the I'll, dragon tattoo, the the gold. Yeah, this dragon. is more like a magic and magician, Lord of the Rings type stuff. Okay. So I'm always reading fiction. I think fiction informs us so much nowadays. It's so well researched. Mm. I think we should probably cut down our business reading by. If you read ten business books a year, I would suggest read four and read the rest fiction. I must really get into that. I only read business books. I read about sixty a year. I'm getting like overload. It's like, okay, so let me tell you what my problem with that is. Let's, yeah. let's, let's call this right now. Let's call it out. Okay, so <laughs> uh, last year I lost 20 kilograms. And the way I did it is I did this thing called intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting is very easy. You eat between midday and 8 p.m. And then you stop eating at 8 p.m. And then you fast until 12. And the idea is very simple. is that your body has easy calories to burn that you feed it and hard mm -hmm. calories to burn. That's your kind of your fat. And we don't give our body time to get into the fat, mm -hmm. right? All we do is we give it more and more food the whole time and it just gets to, to consume that. So actually you're just taking these calories in, calories out. And I feel that we're doing exactly the same with information. Reading 60 books, you only need to read one business book mm -hmm. a year. Reading, reading books, you don't need more knowledge. So what's happening is you're consuming all of this information and you're going from book to book to book to book, one to the next to the next to the next. But all it is is information. You're not giving yourself time to actually mm. burn it. And I think we consume knowledge calories, but what we actually have to do is burn knowledge calories. So what we've got to do is sit there with a book and, and read it and write down at least 10 actions in that book. And don't let yourself start the next one until you've ticked off at least five of those. Get intentional about why you're reading. Mm. The knowledge for the sake of knowledge is ridiculous. It's just mm. information. And again, we don't need to know everything because we can find everything. So now we've gone back and we've glorified this idea of, uh, you know, I look at services like Goodreads where it says you'll set a, a goal for the beginning of the year. And, you know, I found myself buying shorter books for the sole purpose of making sure that I could read them quicker <laughs> so I could meet my Goodreads goal. And I thought, what? This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. What I should be doing is just consuming what I need and then turning that into action. For me as well, I find that reading books that aren't specifically business books that, are, you know, like Sapiens or Homo Deus, yeah. or I'm reading a book at the moment called Guns, Germs and Steel. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Book. Oh, uh, so I'm really enjoying that. And this anarchy evolution that Greg Graffin has just written. Reading books about the world around us and what got us to where we are today is helping to inform me about where we'll go forward. So I would like to suggest that you be brave enough to 
dramatically cut down the amount you consume mm. and turn it into action. So measure the progress not on how many books you've read, but mm. how many actions you've taken at the end of 2019 because of books you've read. And to me, if you're only measuring the input and you're not measuring the output, then you're not progressing. So we, we're confusing the consumption of knowledge with the turning of that knowledge into action. And it's just consuming fuel. We're not burning it. I totally love that analogy because I almost feel like that information fatigue that you get, like it just feels like the same thing on loop over and over. Oh, you read this book. That's where you got this inspiration. And it's just the same thing. And I love the idea of taking action because I think action is m more powerful than anything else. At the Future Fit networking event, Pepe Maria was doing his Purpose Fit um, Pechacucha, that's how you say it. I don't know. I never know how to say yeah, that word. Be, like for a while, people thought it was Pekachka, but it does seem to be Pechacucha. I watched a video of Japanese they say people very saying it, and it's a Pechacucha. It's like da, 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 da. <laughs> So he was doing that, and he was talking, and he ended up like knowledge is not a superpower because if you don't take action on that knowledge, it means nothing. And it's so true. Yeah, there's a quote by Neil Milan that I love. He's a, a South African speaker and he says, if action followed knowledge, we'd all have six packs. We all know exactly what it takes to have six packs, but we don't. Mm. And again, it's because we glorify this idea of, oh, like this assumption, oh, have you read Tim Ferriss's new book or have you listened to this new podcast episode? Or, um, there's just too much information mm. and we need to be brave enough to be willing to say no. Oh, actually, I actually have no interest. Another thing for me about fiction, why I like it so much, and I think that fiction has definitely been my, my secret weapon, my unfair advantage, is that in business books, when you read a business book, there's no thinking required. You're mm. taking their information, they're telling you what to think, and they're popping it into your head. They tell you everything. In fiction, a lot of the rendering is required by you. They're describing a scenario, and you've got to put the whole thing together. And mm. so what that does is it forces your brain to go into a creative state. And that creative state that you're putting your brain in when you're reading good fiction and you're trying to figure out how everything looks and it is, and what does this character look like and sound like and all of these things, that is the same creative skill that's required when you're solving a big business problem. Mm. right? Okay. So, so the one you become a consumer, the other bit you become a co-creator. And I think there's more value in becoming a co-creator of of great fiction. And again, great research fiction. Nowadays, you can learn so much from well-written, well-researched authors that uh, you almost wouldn't need to read anything else. I was watching, I don't know if you've heard of that masterclass.com. Yes, of course. So, oh, I'm obsessed with it. So I just find it like so refreshing. I love pop culture. Anyway, so James Patterson was talking about how he writes his books and how he builds this this, this file of inspiration that every time when he reads something or something sparks an idea in his mind, he, he builds this big, big, huge file. And every time when he gets ready for a book before he starts plotting it, he grabs this huge folder and he goes through every little thought that he's had during all the books that he's read. And this is how he builds his plots of his stories and takes from all of the other information that he's been taking in. And that was just like, I started doing that. I've got a folder like that now. So I take all of that information. And every time when I build a presentation, I look and see where's that inspiration, where can it feed into, into the story that I'm trying to tell so i think it's important for people also to to let that imagination go and when you have that thought write it down put it somewhere because you're going to use it someday yes i use a principle i refer to as idea trapping and we all have ideas but we don't trap them so i, I use an app for it now mm -hmm. i used to carry notebooks as well which are one of my businesses is a notebook company so i, I still really really enjoy really? it yeah called human rights for every book we sell we give away 10 books to kids it's pretty cool i love that uh, but 
For me, having an idea trap, a place to write something down is so critical. So my business partner, Don Packett, is a stand-up comedian. And this was a skill I learned from him. He always carried a small little moleskin in his back pocket. And what I realized about comedians is comedians, great comedians, see the world in a way that's slightly different. They see it through a different lens. So we all see something absurd. They see, they see the humor in it and they mm. see where there could be a joke. But Don realized he would see these things and then he would drive home. And by the time he got home, he'd totally forgotten it. Correct. It's like if you are to walk out of a hilarious movie and ask you to name the five funniest bits of the movie, you'd struggle to come up with three, even if you laughed from start to finish. So what Don does, the second he sees something that he thinks could be material, he takes out a notebook and he writes it down. And that's just for comedy. And I refer to this as an idea trap. It is a place where ideas get caught and locked in. Mm. So I have idea traps for books that I'm writing, for talks that I'm writing, and also for just general content. So I use an app called Notion as well that I use to, to capture these things. And it appears kind of like a Trello board. So when I have an idea, I'll be riding on my motorbike and I'll get to a point where I'm like, oh, this is a great idea. And I used to think, well, let me get home and then I'll write it down. And now I've started pulling over if I can, getting to the side of the road, putting out either my paper notebook or notion so usually i'll write it in my notebook first and then later on uh, file it uh, online you're, you're disciplined <laughs> uh, so i'm disciplined about everything i have yes. i have rituals for everything i do wow. the, when i wake up in the morning what i do things like this like a, it's incredible yeah be, it's because i'm flaky that i need to create structure mm. so structure allows me to not have to think of things so I'll do that and I'll trap it because you've got to be able to find it later. So I have ideas for fiction books I'm writing, for business books I'm writing, for a philosophy book I'm busy writing at the moment, uh, for talks. But you just need to have a very specific place yeah. to capture those. And you've got to capture them the second they come to mind. Don't say, oh, after this meeting. Don't say, oh, when I get back to you know where I'm going, pull over your car, get to the side and write it in your idea trap. I love that. So the app is called Notion. Notion is uh, yeah, a phenomenal app. It's notion.io or something or whatever. But it's a really, really amazing tool. I also use Workflowy. Workflowy is probably my brain. Notion allows me to really build talks in it. Workflowy is like just where I dump everything. For all the audiences out there, you guys have to download this. This is amazing. And it's so important to keep, as you say, an idea trap, a spark file. Keep those things together because they do tend to be very useful at some some points in your life. I think we've had so much to cover. Just very quickly, maybe tell the audience about the books that's out. That my, my books. Your books, yeah. I've got two books. The first is called Legacide. The second is called Boredom Slayer. So Legacide is that legacy thinking is a silent killer of innovation. We used to, in 21 Tanks, our innovation lab, we used to think that we were going to create all these cool new things. But it turns out if you're an established business, innovation doesn't happen when you start doing something new. Innovation happens when you stop doing something old. Love it. And wrote a book about this idea of how you slay legacy thinking in your business. And then speaking of slaying, that led to the second book, which was Boredom Slayer. Boredom Slayer was my old title that used to appear in the bottom of my email. And the reason we like it is that when we started Missing Link, the presentation company, the first of the two, Missing Link and Talk Drawer, when we started that, we, we realized that people didn't have a presentation problem. They had a boring presentation problem. And if an audience is bored, they're not going to listen and engage. Yeah. And... For me, the opposite of boring isn't crazy. The opposite of boring is memorable and interesting. Mm. And we wanted to just try and slay this boredom everywhere. So the next book, because of Talk Drawer, the new business we have in the presentation space, I really wanted to try and, it was the second business we had, and I really wanted to try and uh, double down and 
you know, take a position on presentation theory. Mm. So um, although I felt there was a lot of material out there already, I decided to write our take on it. We have a formula and a format that we follow when it comes to presentation design and delivery. And so I thought, okay, we have enough kind of science behind it now to, to lay it down. So I wrote Boredom Slayer last year. Yeah, and I got the book and I started reading it and it's phenomenal. It really is. Really cool. Thank you very much. Lastly, again, where can people um, go on your course? How much does it cost? What's the process? There's two ways to learn to present. The one is practice in public, you, you know, just speak more. Mm-hmm. For that, they can go to talkdrawer.com. Uh, they'll just sign up. There's a month free or whatever. And I think it's like cheap, like $20 or something a month thereafter. And we create content. So we believe that a good presentation is written, not delivered. Mm. A poor speaker can deliver an amazing presentation. They don't have to be a great speaker if it's well-structured. Mm. And equally, a great speaker, can you can listen to them for an hour and they'll change you not at all. So there's that. And then the other way from Missing Link is that we have various presentation courses you can get involved in. So there's like, I'm not sure how much it is exactly, but it's like a, you can have a one day seat in a full day course is like five grand. We have a public speaker masterclass that we're putting together at the moment. We have courses in slide design and presentation delivery and the storytelling aspect of things. And obviously we love Very to cool. book as a company and come out with a group of up to 10 people. So there's many ways you can engage with this, but either going to Missing Link's website, msnglnk.com or talkdrawer.com. Uh, that's talk, blah, 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 and drawer, <laughs> as in a drawer you open and close, and take it from there. Fantastic. In tradition, we play a game. You are going to be the first person to play Barry Hilton's game. Great. I hope this is going to go well. Hello, my cousins. It's Barry Hilton here, and welcome to the Carmen Murray Show. Have I got something lacquer to show you? I've got a game that I've invented called Smart Ask. Yes, can you be a smart ask? I'm sure you can. Most of us are smart askers. But this game, it's quite simple. It's split up into six categories. There's nine cards on each category. Every card has six questions. The dealer chooses the question. And all you have to do is answer three questions correctly to win the game. Is that easy? Uh, well, all of the answers are in multiples of three. So let's get ready to play the game. On your marks, get it. Go. Okay, name three. Uh, entertainment, Elvis Presley songs. Love Me Tender, uh, Jailhouse Rock, Blue Suede Shoes. Okay, James Bond films. The Spy Who Loved Me, Casino Royale, and Live and Let Die. Actors who played James Bond. Sean Connery, uh, shit, Roger Moore, <laughs> and uh, ah, Dalton, Timothy okay. Dalton. Okay, Star Wars films. The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and A New Hope. Deceased British pop or rock stars? Deceased. Uh, John Lennon, uh, David Bowie, and... Ah, <laughs> shit, 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 there's so many dead pop stars. Monty Python sketches. Uh, is this the room for an argument? <laughs> uh, the, the funny walks and uh, uh, parrots, yeah. Okay. Albatross. Oh, my God. Ooh, okay, British Prime Ministers. Um, oh, just uh, uh, Winston uh, Churchill. Okay. You've yeah. done it. You've done one card, though. Okay. Well done. Although, bizarrely, the pop stars, dead pop stars, that should be super easy. I know, but isn't yeah. that the things that should be easy is not when you yeah, call it off on, guard? Yeah, I know. I just kept on thinking, I actually forgot David Bowie died. 
So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, can't forget David Bowie. Anyway, I just want to thank you so much for your time. It was super awesome having you. you here. You are such a rock star. Ah, jeez. I don't know about that, but thank you very much. And I'm definitely going to come on one of your courses. I'm telling you that. Please now. do. Yeah. You'll have a lot of fun. Yeah, I will. I know I will. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. And Arabadechi, ciao. Until the next time. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. To our amazing audiences around the world, thank you so much for your ongoing support. Please take a moment to review and rate your favorite episodes, which will help others find us. You mean the world to me, and I thank you for being part of my journey to get people future fit. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another Solid Gold podcast. For show notes and more episodes, visit solidgoldstudios.co.za slash Carmen Murray.